leaving. It's where our text will be found this morning. We'll read one verse there. Normally, uh, this is Palm Sunday, and normally I would preach a Palm Sunday sermon. If you want to hear that sermon, come back this evening at 5.30. Amen? All God's people said amen. All right? Um, the crucifixion was heavy on my heart earlier in the week and part of last week, and I told Micah, go ahead and prepare that way because uh, I wasn't going to preach such a, the, the normal Palm Sunday sermon that I normally would. But this morning, Luke chapter 23, verse 33, just share some thoughts um, from the crucifixion for a little while this morning. <clears throat> the one verse there in verse number 33 simply says this, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, may, many of your uh, scriptures may say Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, the Gospels, the four Gospels, don't go into a lot of description and, and go, don't go into a lot of detail about the actual crucifixion, the, the description of what happens during a crucifixion. But we have a lot of documents, we have a lot of historical information from that time period that tells exactly what happened during a crucifixion. Martin Hingle wrote a book uh, simply titled Crucifixion. And this is part of, uh, this is an excerpt from what he said there. Prisoners are first publicly humiliated by being stripped naked, then laid on their back on the ground while his hands were either nailed or roped to the horizontal wooden beam, the patabulum, and his feet to the vertical pole. And the cross was then hoisted to an upright position and dropped into a socket, which had been dug for it in the ground, which was a great part of the torture that jarring as that cross was dropped into the ground. There was usually a peg or a rudimentary seat that was provided to take some of the weight of the victim's body and prevent it from being torn loose. But there he would hang, helplessly exposed to intense physical pain, public ridicule, daytime heat, and nighttime cold. The torture would last for several days. Now the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus began carrying his cross to the place called Golgotha, or the place of the school. But he stumbled under the weight of his cross, and a man named Simon from Cyrene in North Africa was stopped, and he was forced to carry the cross for Jesus. And there at Golgotha, as Jesus was about to go through this terrible torment, they offered him um, a wine mixed with myrrh. It was a merciful gesture. It was meant to help dull some of the worst pain that he would endure. Matthew, in his account, says that Jesus tasted it, but he refused to drink it. And all four of the gospel writers write this simple statement, and they crucified him. So as we look there on that day in the crucifixion, there were events in, uh, that led up to this situation, and there were people who were involved in the situation. There were people who were, um, we would look at through the scripture, through the gospel accounts, and we would look at these individuals and these groups of people, and we would say, well, this person bared responsibility, or this group bared some responsibility, or this person had, had a hand to play in the crucifixion of Jesus. All of these things and all these events went together. God had everything completely orchestrated the way he wanted to. But this morning, let's look at some of the characters, some of the people, the personalities who were there, who, who played a hand 
in those words, they crucified him. Who were they? Those people. First one of those people is Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Now the Roman soldiers carried out the appalling task. There's no evidence from the scriptures that they enjoyed this any more than they did any other crucifixion. There's no evidence that they were uh, particularly more there at once Jesus got to Golgotha. There's no evidence that they were particularly more torturous there at that moment. They'd already tortured Jesus plenty uh, there in the scourging and the mocking that he had gone through. But these men, as they were, as Jesus has handed off to them for the crucifixion, this is just another day of work for them. This is just another group of criminals who are coming through and another group of people who they have the task of ending their life and torturing them publicly and humiliating them publicly to keep the Jewish people there in Palestine and in Jerusalem, to keep those people under subjection and to keep those people in fear and to keep those people from revolting against Caesar. So to these Roman soldiers, this is just another day. This is just something that they do. They're obeying orders that were given to them. Hey, it's just my job. They did what they had to do. And look, in the next verse there, in verse number 34, this is what Jesus was saying while they were doing that. And all the while, Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. See, Jesus knew as he was handed off, he's not just another criminal. He's not just another, not someone leading a, an insurrection against the government. He knows that he's the Savior of the world. He knows that he's the Messiah. He knows that the blood that he is shedding there at Calvary is the blood that's shed for all mankind for their sins. These men, are, they're simply carrying out the order of the Roman procurator who ordered the crucifixion. John describes him this way in his gospel in, in chapter 19. He says, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, and they crucified him. Now, Pilate has played a pivotal role in what is happening here. In fact, his guilt is written into our Christian creed, which declares that Jesus suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pilate hated the Jews. He despised these people that he had put, been put in charge of. He looked down on them. He looked at them and saw them as uneducated, as rabble, as just people who were beneath him. And he hated, his, he, he hated the assignment that he had being there with these people who he thought were just superstitious heathens. And he thought his pagan self looked at them as being the pagans. He hated them so much that when he came into Jerusalem, he put insignias of Caesar all over Jerusalem just to make those people in Jerusalem angry and, and to cause them uh, anguish. Now, his policies were, weren't any different than others. Other Roman leaders just wanted the destruction of these Jewish people and wanted them out of the way. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that Pilate hated these people so much that he took the money from the Jewish temple and he built an elaborate aqueduct system so that he would look good back in Rome to Caesar. And the people were so upset with him for doing this, they rioted. And we believe that Luke's account in chapter 13 talks about this where it says that Pilate mixed the blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices. Pilate is a man with an extremely hot temper 
He's a violent man, and he's a very cruel man. So the question that arises is this. Why would this man, Pilate, allow himself to be pressured by a group of Jewish religious authorities into allowing Jesus to be executed? Why would this man who despised these people, who looked down on these people as just being superstitious morons, why would he look at them and allow them to pressure him into putting Jesus to death? Because the claims that these people make as they bring Jesus to them is that Jesus has said no taxes should be paid to Caesar and that he claimed to be a king, he claimed to be the Christ, and it made it impossible for Caesar, for Pilate to ignore because they, he knew that they would go over his head to Caesar and say to Caesar, Pilate has ignored this man who says he's the real king. And so he has to act. And he does an investigation of Jesus. And it clearly shows that he's convinced of Jesus' innocence. He examines him three times. And each time he makes a statement such as this. This man has done nothing to deserve death. But then finally he's shouted down by the crowds of people there who cry out, crucify him. Pilate has a scheme here. He wants to avoid coming down clearly on one side or the other. He wants to ride the fence. Politically, what happens when you ride the fence? Something bad always happens to that person. So Pilate finally has to make a decision. He wants to release Jesus, but he wants to pacify the Jewish leaders who are here. So here's what he does. He tries to find a way out, first by sending Jesus back to Herod, he finds out that Jesus is a Galilean, and Herod has jurisdiction over Galilee. So he sends Jesus back to Herod, and, and he hopes that Herod will either say, this man is innocent, release him, or this man is guilty, and he can look at Herod, and he can shift the responsibility to him. Well, what does Herod do? Herod immediately sends Jesus back. Herod doesn't want any part of this. He wanted Jesus to come and do magic tricks for him. He wanted Jesus to come out and do some, some sort of miracle for him. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard about all these things that Jesus can do, all the, all the miracles that he's performed. And Herod says, do, do something great for me. Jesus doesn't do it. Herod is disappointed. Herod hates Pilate, and Pilate hates Herod. But on that day, they become friends because they both become haters of Jesus. So, he tries to shift responsibility to somebody else. We live in an era, we live in a day of responsibility shifting. We live in a time where there's, where there's no consequences. If we can shift our responsibility to somebody else, if we can shift the blame to someone else, we live in a world where the ethics and morality of this world have said that if I can get out of it and I can give it to somebody else, then my hands are clean of it. That's what, Herod, that's what Pilate and Herod were doing here. And then he does a half measure. He has Jesus punished, and the punishment is so brutal, and the punishment is so cruel that he believes that when he brings Jesus back and this crowd sees Jesus after this scourging, he believes that they'll say, well, that's plenty enough. Just let him go. He thought that the crowd might be satisfied by something less than death. He gives a half-measured response. This week and next week, churches will be filled with people who will show up for Easter Sunday services or Palm 
Sunday services. And they'll hear a gospel message. And they'll hear a message of a Savior. They'll hear a message of a God who loved them so much that he sent his only son to die in their place, to shed his blood, to give his life for their sins. And a lot of those people will sit there and as a minister gives an opportunity for them to get forgiveness of their sins and to repent of those sins and to come and give their lives wholly to Jesus, they'll do a half measure. They'll sit there and they'll bargain with themselves. And they'll say, you know what, I'll clean this area of my life up. I'll act different in this area of my life. I'll do better in this area of my life. I don't want to commit fully just right now, but I'll begin a process of doing things better, and maybe that will please God enough that he'll spare me. Probably some of you who are sitting here under the sound of my voice can remember a time when you sat and did those bargains with God. How'd those bargains work out for you? Never did me any good. But Pilate does a half measure here, and then he does this third thing. He tried to pass over amnesty. He knows that it's the Passover week, and he knows that because of that, there is a Jewish ritual where he can offer up a criminal to them and allow that criminal to be freed by the people, by their command, by, by their desire. So he brings two men out. He brings Jesus Christ, and he brings out Barabbas. Barabbas, a murderer, a person who is responsible for insurrection. And he tries this Passover amnesty. He thinks, surely they'll hear my voice where I've said this man is innocent, and they'll look at this proven criminal, and they'll take Jesus, and they will, they'll feel compassion for him, and they'll let him go. But it doesn't work. The people cry out, give us Barabbas. And then finally, he tries to declare his own self innocent. What does he do? He goes to a wash basin, and he washes his hands, and he says, my hands are clean. My hands are innocent of this man's blood. But before his hands could dry, he hands Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. How many people do you know who spend their time washing their hands and saying, I'm just as innocent as, as, as anyone else? I'm no more guilty than anyone else. My life is just as good as the people at church. My life is just as good as my neighbor who says they're a Christian. I'm no worse than anyone else. Somewhere Pilate this morning is still wringing his hands and still, still hold, washing his hands, so to speak, and trying to declare his innocence before God. But he'll never be declared innocent because of the blood of Jesus. You see, Pilate's choice was, the, was this. Pilate had a choice between honor and ambition, and he chose ambition over honor. And then we look at the Sanhedrin. Uh, it, should be, uh, it can be translated as the council. It's the group of main Jewish priests and the high priest whose name is Caiaphas. Now, they have religious authority over the people in Jerusalem, but they have that authority only at the discretion of the Roman government and the Roman person who's in charge, which is Pilate. Pilate lets these people do pretty much what they want as long as they don't get in his way and bother him. And when they do get in his way and bother him, he comes down on them very hard. But Pilate, here it, it proves the trial of Jesus, shows that this Sanhedrin council didn't have the authority to condemn people to death. They had to go to Pilate to get that. Now, 
The Gospels all describe this group's role in the arrest, the trial, and the condemnation of Jesus. And under the leadership of Caiaphas, the high priest, they'd already plotted to have Jesus killed way ahead of time. And they, they conspired with Judas to betray Jesus. And after his arrest, they brought Jesus into their council, and they used false witnesses to condemn him. And then they send him to Pilate and pressure Pilate into pronouncing this death sentence. Now here's the problem with Jesus and this group of religious leaders. The problem is Jesus had upset this establishment from the outset of his public ministry. Many of the people considered him to be a religious authority or a rabbi. But these group, this group here didn't recognize him that way because he didn't go through the proper channels or the proper door to get in and to be accepted by this group. He didn't have the formal training that they thought was necessary. And now on top of this, who did Jesus hang out with? Jesus was with sinners and tax collectors. April 15th is coming up. Some of you people sitting here right now probably have great disdain for tax collectors. Tax collectors were hated worse than the sinners. And Jesus, these are the people that Jesus chose to hang out with and it upset these people. Listen, while everyone else was fasting, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was eating and feasting. And while everyone else on, on the Sabbath we refused to heal somebody. Jesus did what the, the Sanhedrin council thought was just blasphemous in the fact that he would heal people in the temple on the Sabbath. He upset these people so bad. And then here's what he pointed out about these people. He pointed out that these people were more concerned with their rules and regulations than they were with the people that they had religious authority over. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind leaders of the blind. And he compared them to whitewashed tombs. He said, you look good on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. But this is where he really got them. When he called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, and he claimed to know God uniquely as Father, and then he said that he was equal with God. And this was the blasphemous statement that they brought against him, the charge that they brought against him as they met together. Now here's their sin. Their sin is envy. Envy is the reasoning for their pursuit of the death of Jesus. Who are the most envious people in the world? Prideful people are the most envious people in all the world. And this was a very prideful group of people. They were proud of their Jewish heritage. They were proud of their Jewish religion. They were proud of their Jewish nation. They were proud of these moral books that they had put together and all the rules that they had. But the thing they were most proud of was their authority. They were proud of the authority that they had over the people, and so their contest with Jesus was an authority struggle. You see, if Jesus had came along and he'd asked their permission to do the things that he was doing, if he'd have came along and he'd have brought them in to what he was doing, oh, they would have been fine with that. But Jesus knew immediately that what they were doing was actually hindering people from being able to go to the temple and find the relationship with God that they needed. So Jesus, 
At some point, they question Jesus and say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus said, my authority is to teach comes from God. I have authority to drive out demons, to forgive sins. And Jesus went as far as to say, someday I will judge the whole world. See, he was different than the Jewish leaders. They had authority, but how far did their authority go? Their authority went as far as the Roman government would allow it to go. How far did Jesus' authority go? As far as God would allow him to let it go. And so these people, Jesus' authority was real. It was effortless. It was transparent. And it was obviously straight from God. And so we see these first two people who were working together. But then we see Judas Iscariot, who we met last week in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Judas is the treasurer for the disciples. One of the writers of the Gospels was called Judas Stingy and called him a thief. He's the betrayer, and he's most likely a zealot who wants to overthrow the government and have a position for himself. We know that last week we talked about Jesus being anointed by Mary at Bethany and the anger that Judas had over a waste of a year's wages, but he sold Jesus for a third of that same amount. So Jesus warns us to beware of all covetousness. Paul declared the love of money to be the root of all evil. And Judas is both of these things. He's evil and he's covetous. Covetous. That's a hard word for y'all to say. Y'all think y'all having a hard time hearing it. I'm having a real hard time saying it. Uh, I stood, I stood talking to some uh, a foreigner on Friday, and him trying to speak to me in his English, and me trying to speak back to him in my broken Piedmont English. I don't think anything got accomplished, but. But here's what here's the point. Judas wanted material gain. Judas wanted material gain, and he descended to the greatest depth of depravity that anyone has ever sunk to in order to get that material gain. Jesus said this, it's impossible to serve God and to serve money. And Judas chose to serve money and his own personal gain. So we see these people, we see Pilate, we see the Sanhedrin council, we see Judas Iscariot, and it's easy to look at these people and to say that each one of them are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. But what about us? What about those of us who are here this morning? How about us? Did we play as much of a role in the crucifixion as these three people or these three groups may have? You see, it was our sins. Judas handed Jesus to the priest. The priest handed him to Pilate, and Pilate delivered him to be crucified. But there's a question that Pilate asked that should echo in our minds this morning. Why? Why? What crime has he committed? What crime has Jesus committed that I should take him and crucify him? Christ died for our sins. Our sins were an obstacle. Our sins are an obstacle that prevents us from receiving the gift that Jesus wanted to give us, the gift that the Father had intended for us from the foundations of the, of the, of the creation. 
those sins had to be removed before that gift could be given. And the only one who could remove those sins, the only one who could be that substitute for our sins, the only one who was born of a virgin who lived a sinless life, who was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet didn't know sin, Jesus was the only one who could deal with those sins. He's the only one who could take them away. And he had to die a death on a cross in order to do that. See, it would have been, it would have been within the Sanhedrin's, if they could have recommended, they could have recommended that Jesus be stoned. We'll see this same council later on in the book of Acts. Luke's writing says that they took Stephen, the first martyr, out and they stoned him. They could have said that Jesus, they, they could have recommended to Pilate, take him out and stone him. But Jesus had to die a death on a cross. Jesus had to die and be a curse. Because what did the Jewish religion say? Anyone who is hanged on a tree is what? Is cursed. Jesus had to be that curse for our sins. Jesus had to give his life there on a cross. He dealt with our sins. He took them away by his death. For our sins, for our sins, is used by nearly every New Testament writer. They seem to have been clear that in some way still to be determined, the death of Christ and our sins are related to each other. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.3, Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Simon Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.26, he offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. You see, our sin is extremely horrible. And for us to know how horrible it is, there has to be a cross. There has to be a crucifixion. There has to be the most cruel, violent, agonizing, torturous death that anyone could possibly go through for us to understand and be able to relate to how horrible our sins actually are. God never allowed sin to go unpunished, and he never allowed sin to go with, with, with being looked over and, 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 let, and let go. You see, our sin is so heavy and so great that it had to be a cross that makes it, this so evident to us. It wasn't the greed of Judas. It wasn't the envy of the priest. It wasn't the cowardice of Pilate. But it's my greed. It's my envy. My cowardice. My sins. Those are the things that Christ had to go to a cross and resolve for me. Christ had to give his love. And Christ had to give his mercy. And Christ had to bear my judgment. And Christ had to put my sins away from me. Because it is, it is impossible this morning for me to face the cross and not feel ashamed of myself for my sins. The cross makes it evident how great my sins were. And more and more in this generation, what does the world want to take away from our public place? The cross. The cross. More and more large churches that host graduations are being asked, Hey, we, we still want to have our graduation there at your church, but can you cover up those crosses? I know one pastor who told him, you can take your graduations back to your football field then. Because we're not covering up our cross. 
We're not covering up what Jesus did for us for any reason. God shows us through the cross that our sin is extremely horrible, but also at the cross, God shows us that his love is wonderful beyond anything that we could ever comprehend. You see, I deserve this morning, I deserve to be abandoned. I deserve to be alone and abandoned, and I deserve someday to stand before God, and I deserve to meet the wrath of God alone and without help because of my sins. But someday I will stand before God, and someday I, I will stand before Him, and He won't look at me, and He won't look at my sin. He will look at me through Jesus Christ and His righteousness, and He will look at me as though I have, I have that same righteousness. He will look at me because I have that same righteousness applied to my life through the death of Christ. And I will exchange... He will, he will take that wrath that was reserved for me and he will exchange it for eternal life. That's why I'm preaching to some... Hmm. Never mind. Listen. Because he loved us, he pursued us. When Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, it would have been easy for God. God came every afternoon and he had personal fellowship with Adam and Eve on the earth in the Garden of Eden. When they sinned, God knew it and it would have been easy for God just to have stayed away from them, to have abandoned them completely and to have said, I will, I will not have anything else to do with you because you are disobedient. But what did God do? He pursued them. He went to the garden and he pursued them. And he asked them where they are. Where, where are you? It was the first pursuit of a sinner. And just as he did for Adam and Eve, he pursued us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He pursued us out of his love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that we would not have to perish, but that we could have everlasting life, eternal life. But it's more than love, it's grace. It's grace. I was redeemed at the cross. There was an exchange made. God took my sins and he exchanged those sins for Christ's righteousness. There was a redemption that went on there. And Christ's salvation had to be a free gift. Jesus had to buy my salvation. Jesus had to purchase my salvation. What good work, what good thing could I do to deserve such love and to deserve such a gift? I watched this past, just on Friday, I watched this. It was amazing. There were estimated 1,200 people who poured into the city of Jacksonville to volunteer, to help people, people they didn't know. And, and, and to give that help and to extend that help to people who were hurting and suffering and in need and who were desperate. I could spend, I could have spent the last, all of my life, and I could spend the rest of my life 
going and doing and helping and, and serving? Would it be enough alone to do that every day of my life? If I could find a disaster every day and go and serve, would it be enough to satisfy the sin debt I owe? No. There had to be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute for me. And Jesus was that. Jesus purchased my salvation. Jesus would make two more statements from the cross. He would say these words. He would say, it is finished. Three simple words, it is finished. Jesus is in essence saying, I have completed my mission. My mission was to come and to live and to die for all mankind, for the sins of mankind. And there in those last moments of his life, when he said it is finished, he said the payment, basically what he's saying is the payment is full. The payment is full for anyone who wants to come and follow me and give their life from, to me. The payment is full. It is finished. And he makes one final statement. He says these words. These are the last words with Jesus. As he cried out with a loud voice. These are his last words. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. My life here is over. My, my mission is complete. I have, I have bore the wrath of all mankind. I have taken every sin from mankind. And it is finished and it is settled. And I commit my, my into your hands, I commit my spirit. How wonderful will it be someday if you knew the exact moment that you were, you were leaving this life how wonderful would it be for you to be able to make that final statement that Jesus made and say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I release my soul. I give my, I give my life, I gave my life to you and now I commit my spirit and my soul to you. I've known many people, I've been with many people there in their final moments and I've seen the peace and serenity of knowing that in just a few minutes, their soul would be departed from their body and would be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus went to a cross. The crucifixion was for us. Pilate had a hand. The Sanhedrin had a hand. Judas had a hand. They were all used by God to to develop this situation that was going on. But they were all used by God for you and I this morning so that we could know the forgiveness of our sin. Jesus went to a cross and he died for you. His blood was shed for you. Next Sunday morning, we will rejoice and we will celebrate the resurrection. And we will celebrate that Jesus is triumphant over death and that the grave couldn't hold him. And as we sang earlier, <laughs> he ran out of that grave. 
And later John and Peter would run out of that same grave and declare he is risen. And next week we will celebrate and we will say he is risen. But before, but before there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. There has to be a crucifixion. There has to be payment for our sins. And Jesus went to a cross and paid that debt for us. And this morning would be a wonderful day to begin a relationship with him simply by saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For the rest of my life, I will simply choose to follow you, to serve you. I want forgiveness of my sins. I want to know that I've been forgiven, and I want to know that my eternity is secure with you. I'm going to ask you to stand for just a moment and bow your heads with me. Morning. Supposing that knowing that in a group of people, of this many people, there are, there, are, there are people here this morning who need to know the forgiveness that I've talked about this morning, who need to know that you have committed your spirit, your soul, to Jesus Christ, that you have forgiveness of those sins. This morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'll do something that I normally don't do, but I want to ask you, where you're sitting, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know that you have been forgiven of your sins? Do you know that you have repented of those sins? You've turned from those sins and you've chosen to follow Jesus. Do you know without a shadow of a doubt this morning that, it, that this afternoon if you were to leave this life that your eternity is secure at home with Jesus? Maybe there, you, have, you have doubt in your heart about that relationship with him. Don't leave here today with that doubt. This morning, I want to, I want to say this. Jesus prayed this, this, said these final words. And I want to offer that opportunity to you this morning. If you need to know that, that forgiveness, and simply with me this morning, pray like this. Father, I want to commit my spirit, my soul into your hands. I want to give you my life. I want to give you every single thing about me and not hold anything back. I want to know this morning that I am forgiven. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I repent and I turn from those sins. And I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Father, I want to know that my home is in heaven with you for eternity. And Father, right now I thank you for the forgiveness that you have given to me at the cross. And I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. This morning, if you, if you prayed that prayer, would you simply let me know just by lifting your hand? I won't ask you to do anything else at this point, but just let me know just simply by lifting your hand. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I want to tell you this morning that you have begun a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to, first of all, I want you to tell someone what you've done. And I want you to, um, I want you to commit to seeing me and letting me talk to you about baptism in the future and let you understand more about the decision you've made this morning. Father, thank you for a soul that has been won to Jesus. 
Father, I pray for the rest of this invitation that we worship and that we praise, we reflect, that we come and pray, or that we follow in baptism, church membership, whatever it is we need to do during this time. I pray that we are wise with it. In Jesus' name, as Micah leads us, 